Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're very welcome to the McClifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, we're living under restrictions, as I'm sure you'll all know, some of us more than others, and I'm thinking there in particular the over 70s and those with underlying health conditions. But all of us have to observe general restrictions about our daily lives, and that has led to some major changes, the kind of changes I'd say we couldn't even envisage a few short months ago. Joining me to discuss the human aspect of our current restrictions is Irish Examiner columnist Alison O'Connor. Alison, how are you? Hi there, Mick. How are you? I'm good, Alison. You've been writing some, I must say, very good stuff, some very sharp stuff in your columns in the Examiner over the last few weeks. And I thought you wrote a very moving column about the death of a cousin of yours some years ago. And you did so, I think it's fair to say, in the context of the current restrictions there are on funerals. And you were making a point about the rituals around death and what people who unfortunately will be bereaved in the current climate are going to um, effectively miss out on. Yes, Mick. Well, let me start by saying uh, that now that I'm stuck inside every day with the family and the dog, I'm even more prone to flattery. So thank you very much uh, (laughs) for those kind words Um, or seeking it out wherever I can get it. Yeah, I suppose it was funny. One of those pieces that I hadn't even necessarily intended to write until I sat down and... um, Partly, I guess, well, fully, really, it's to do with all the stuff in the news. Anytime you see an ambulance passing, I have been out for a walk and seen, you know, a hearse passing. Um, And even though I wouldn't be religious myself, very lapsed Catholic, you know, would feel, felt the urge twice now. I've seen a hearse passing and felt the urge to, to cross myself you know, this sense that we should do all we can to mark a death, the passing of a human life, because we do that generally so well in this country. I remember about 10 years ago at an uncle's funeral, someone from the UK was this man was married to my aunt and one of his nieces who lived in the UK. And she was in her, I think, her 30s then. And she said she'd never been to a funeral. And I remember just being fascinated by that and how differently we do things. And we went through a spate of funerals in my wider family um, a couple of years ago of elderly aunts and uncles. And I remember overhearing a conversation amongst my kids. This is about three or four years ago. And they were having a discussion over which was better awake in the house or a funeral home. Now, they came to the conclusion it was the wake because there was more treats available. But I just thought, you know, death is is a part of life. And we, uh, I think, do very well with the way we come together, the way people support each other when we're grieving. And, you know, we have the wake, we have the funeral. And that now there is this worry, uh, and I think it's already happening, of people dying alone uh, in hospital without their families, which is actually just really too much for your brain to, to comprehend. It is, I think. And we, we've already seen 
some instances of that in the media of people and it is heartbreaking stuff. Your column last week, Alison, as I say, was very moving in relation to a cousin of yours, Molly, and just to quote uh, just a couple of lines of it, um, and, and you were talking about coming close to the time of her death. You, 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 were, you got the call in the middle of the night, I think, and yourself, another relative went across to her and you said, as we said, the prayers the dawn broke, I'll never forget the stillness in that room, the peacefulness as we sat there waiting for Molly to take her last breath. The world is divided into those who have experience of the death of a close family members and those who have not. And you just said the nuns, veterans of these death vigils, knew immediately what the alterations in her breathing meant. And after a particular change, they gently told us the end was very near. And that is, it's, it's a huge thing for those who are being left behind, isn't it? And as well, some comfort to think that the, the, the person who's about to die on some level has that presence with them. Oh, well, I mean, I will never forget that moment. And I'm very now I'm very conscious. I know of other people who've been there, you know, at the death of a loved one. And it hasn't been anything like that experience I had. Molly was 97, uh, had been in a wonderful nursing home, so well cared for uh, and uh, for for a number of years. And it was hers is the only death I've witnessed, but it was remarkably peaceful and it actually felt, you know, it, it felt a privilege to be there. And I'm conscious that it's, you know, that that's not always the norm, but it was, it also felt like a privilege to be there for her, you know, um, particularly for my aunt to be there who would have been even much closer to her. They would have, you know, kind of grown up together, even though Molly was older. And um, also, and this is another discussion we've had you know, as a country, and we'll be having more when all of this is over, the presence of um, religious people, in that case, nuns, who, um, you know, fell into those rites that are also familiar to us. And there's great comfort in that at a a time like that, uh, in saying those kind of prayers and and being part of a ritual. And in that particular instance, when, and I know it's elderly people who are particularly vulnerable, uh, to uh, to this this virus, uh, they are the ones who are strongest in their faith, and to whom, um, you know, those things, you know, and their family would feel they were important. The decades of the rosary, um, you know, the removal, the funeral, the prayers being said, the the gathering of of, um, of friends and family, um, and that I mean, and I know you see, you read the death notices in the paper, and it's still just where it says, you know, according to government guidelines. There will be a mass at a you know at a later date, or you know it's a private a private funeral, um, and it's it's just kind of it just get it bends your brain trying to um, to contemplate that that's where our society is at at the moment. It does, and just someone else I read there, uh, Fintan O'Toole in the Irish Times had a column in a similar vein, and what's just interesting about that, he, he noticed when he was out for his his allowable walk, we're all allowed one walk apparently, there recently, he he, he watched a, a hearse driving by with a coffin and obviously in the current circumstances on its own. And he said he nearly felt like standing to attention there. And, and it would seem to me that in, in the current environment, and I've noticed this to a certain extent through the media, that because the the nearest and dearest of a, a deceased person can't be present, a wider community around them really make the effort to close ranks and try in some way to provide that comfort. 
Absolutely. And I suppose we have a really good example of that in that very tragic situation um, that only happened a couple of days ago where Conor Connolly, the uh, the former Roscommon footballer who died suddenly while out jogging, I think, last weekend, last Saturday. Um, and that in, you know, and that's a perfect example of what uh, a young man with a young family, three children and um, and his wife, where people ordinarily would be piling up, you know, dropping casseroles at the door, cakes, um, coming to visit the house um, and showing their support in all those different kinds of ways, doing things even for the children, their friends coming and everything. And then attending, I would imagine a funeral like that would have been attended by people in their thousands, teammates doing a guard of honour, you know, GA people from all over the country. None of that could happen. And, um, you know, it was there was something so bittersweet and sad to see people, the way people expressed their solidarity was by hanging the the Roscommon flag um, out their their windows. So, I mean, it just goes to show that, you know, people will will do all in their power to try and offer that. And the, the other thing I think that, you know, we're giving out a lot about social media and the spread of misinformation. But, I mean, there's great... There can be great comfort too in that in that that being a way that people can offer support and in a lot of the death notices that I mentioned earlier they will often say go online and leave your message of of condolence and in something like um, uh, you know the death of uh, of Connor Connolly you see that um, it's a way for people to share their to share their grief you know so I think in, in that way it's a really it's a really positive thing and listen the other thing it's good for I think is a, it's good for a great laugh while I was waiting for you to come on I was watching that family I don't know if you've seen them in the UK who did the um the send up on Les Mis um Les, the musical Les Miserables and it just it had me laughing out loud so you know where I one of the things I think we're really lucky to have in all of this is technology I was going to just say that, and you, you mentioned that, and the WhatsApp thing. No, I'm I'm getting notices from my own phone. WhatsApp full, WhatsApp full, because people are circulating in any different group you're in, whether it be associated with kids football. Right? There's videos of this, that, and the other. Some of which are maybe not most appropriate. That's another matter. But at least people are attempting to to, to laugh through it. What struck me about that, Alison, was. Could you imagine a scenario if we had been faced with this? Now, I'm a small bit older than you, I'd say, but go back to our 20s or go back to when you're still a teenager living at home. Being faced with this without technology and mad and all as it is at the moment, can you imagine what that would have been like in those days? I don't know if you saw, we were watching on Sunday night that it was a really charming programme with where Brendan Courtney brings on RT, brings people yes. back. Yeah. And it was Anne Doyle at all, you know, the various flats you lived in around Dublin at that. And they were talking about queuing in the hall for the for the payphone. That's and right. how you could be. And I mean, can you imagine? And I was saying that to the kids the other day. We have a landline in the hall. Uh, and I always have to look up the number, actually, if anyone ever asks me for it. And generally, we, if it rings in the evening, we know it's Nana ringing because um, uh, she's the only one that, that usually uses it. But I was saying to the kids, that was it. There was one landline and uh, you sat in the hall if you wanted to to speak to people. And you can see that they don't they just it's beyond their comprehension. Because needless to say, I'm sure it's probably the same in your house, Mick. You're trying to keep control of the screen time uh, and failing. But it's proving 
invaluable for them to keep in contact with their friends through video calls and that. I cannot imagine how isolated they would feel. Um, it's the same with the homeschooling, uh, Google Classroom and all of that sort of thing. Um, it, it, it's, you know, I mean, if you go back to a time of fax machines uh, <laughs> and all of that, you know, it would have been just, I mean, that's, I suppose we should think about that. We should think about, you know, um, uh, the Spanish flu and all of that and what, what this hardships that people had then compared to what we have now. Because I think, I do think on a human level, reminding me anyway, personally, speaking for myself, every day I try and remind myself how lucky I am, how lucky we are. We have a house, we have a garden, uh, we have a trampoline, <laughs> which has been magnificent, you know, and we have all sorts of things to be really grateful for compared to um, the position that, that that so many other people, you know, find themselves in. And, and that, you know, and it does, it does help. It makes you kind of feel more grateful than that. I think that's true, yeah. Uh, ab- absolutely. Um, there's also another issue, and that's, of course, people working from home and families being, no, cocooned is not the word, the correct word in this it's phrase. It's definitely it would, not the correct word, no, Mick, no. It, it would have been in, it, it would have been in a time pre-corona, perhaps, but uh, families all, and I work from home and like yourself, I think, Alison, you work from home yeah. too, so we're, we're in, to some ways um, adjusted to that, but not adjusted totally to the fact of having a lot more human beings around at the time of day when it used to be very nice and quiet. Oh, listen, my husband has been saying how much he's enjoying working from home, (laughs) Uh, to which I retorted yesterday, I will be looking to lease space outside the house at the end of all of this if if you decide to stay here. Because like, you know, I mean, I had my routine. It was me and Max, my dog. And we, you know, I, I mean, very, again, very lucky that I had this thing where I have a big screen I have a keyboard, I plug my laptop into it, I have my printer, all those basic things that people really struggled with. I mean, I've heard of some people, uh, even uh, Jay, who subs my column and does so well every week, talking about working from a lap. I mean, I cannot imagine having to do those sort of subbing jobs um, without without a large screen. And then it's trying to get the kids, trying to get some bit of routine, trying to not to be too threatening when I say things like I'm going upstairs now to do a podcast with Mick Clifford and you will be locked <laughs> in the hot press if you come next or near me. Um, or it's the fine line between threatening, actually, and then, you know, offering treats. Uh, I, I always seem to fall on the on the wrong side of, of whichever part of the line I'm meant to fall on. But I think we're all, all parents are, are finding their way around it. I will say, you know, Kids are, I think kids are more adaptable than we are. I think if you kind of try and, you know, talk to them about it and how they're feeling and all of that, they are remarkably adaptable. They are. Um, they're also very much adaptable because they have screens there. But I mean, I take your point. There is a time, and I'd agree with you completely, to be thankful for the screens and the the, the, the hours that they can uh, while away on them. The other thing, Alison, outside of the home and back just to broader society, a thing struck me today and it was just the headlines today suggesting that um, social distancing is working and that therefore we're actually, and it's still too early to say how successful it may be, but we are flattening this curve to some extent. What struck me about that is that what we're actually doing as a society, the vast, vast majority of us, is actually saving the lives 
of the people who would be most vulnerable to this. And that element of solidarity, it's something I just, its it, I don't know, it struck me as being, it, 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 it's something really uplifting on one level. You know, it, it doesn't sound too kind of over the top uh, to say it. You know, we have heard for years and years of people saying about, of course, economically, Irish people have had to emigrate over the generations. But certainly in more recent years, when people would talk about young, their young people having to emigrate, you know, I would kind of think, really, you know, you know, of course you want to go and, and spread your wings and travel for a couple of years. But really right now, nobody has to emigrate. We have a good, and I was having, thinking about that in my head and also, and, and in light of all that's happened and the social solidarity we have and all those people who are coming home, and I was thinking, I wouldn't want to live anywhere other than Ireland. I mean, that's where I wanted to live anyway. But if there were any doubts in my mind, I just think we have played a blinder. I think the way that um, we have been treating each other, like you said, um, conscious of keeping other people who are more vulnerable safe, the way our government and our health um authorities have communicated with us, have spoken to us, the emotional intelligence that they've used, the way that I think they've brought everyone along so that we understand the reasons why. Even the use, it really struck me. Uh, I think, you know, Leo Radker has been applauded very, quite rightly for the speeches that he's given. But even that word cocooning, rather than a more directional, you have to stay at home. You know, it's 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 all I mean, if you just stand back and look at the wider picture, it's actually been, to my mind anyway, a model in how to go about doing something like this. And if you consider you mentioned the figures there, that figure that we have gone from something like um, 33 percent day on day increases in cases to 15 percent now is a direct result of that. They believe we'll have to wait another week or more to, to know for sure. Uh, but that's incredible that we've all done that by by staying at home. Yeah, I think so. And the, the other thing that strikes me about it is, you know, af- after the, the, the economic collapse in 2008 and we were told, and I, I have an awful lot of time for the late Brian Lennon, I think, to be fair to my, I, I think history will record him more favourably than perhaps some did at the time. But in attempting to bring people along, he suggested we were all in this together and people should put on the green jersey. And, Whereas he had the best of intentions there, the thing that struck me about that at the time is ultimately there were winners and losers coming out of that. Some people managed far better than others. But in this thing, it's like we genuinely are in it all together because it's totally irrelevant where in society... Well, it's not, sorry. It's going to be more difficult for those at the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. But in a broader sense... it's very much a democratic thing, this thing of us all being in it together to, to, to try and save whatever lives can be saved. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's a very interesting study to look at the two and the reactions. I think one of the key things is also this time we had nobody coming in from outside, like the IMF saying, here's yes. wagging the finger and saying, here's what you have to do. And it was very much the cod liver oil school of politics you know, and we had no choice. I think that this time around, it has been presented in a different way and that that collectively we can all save lives. The last time there was the element of shame that we had, you know, maybe party too hard, the second properties abroad, 
you know, all all of that that just created combined to create a really toxic mix. Now, you do wonder when who will be the first person to turn around and hopefully feel they have grounds to say, you know, in a while, actually, that was all exaggerated. Why did we do that? Yeah. Um, but if we get to that place, you know, it's a, it's I, I think it's it's a real sign of success. Um, but you know, there's there's an awful lot of water to go on to go under the bridge, uh, you know. Before that, I would be interested. It's a question I don't know the answer to, but I would love to know how many people are tuning in. We'll say even to the Department of Health press conference to the you know when Friday the Friday night speech uh, from Leo Radker. Subsequently, maybe watching the late late show. I would suspect huge numbers and again that sort of thing of people um getting the public service broadcasting uh, and getting all that those messages from um you know uh, you know from rt and that it's seen as and of course virgin media as well in terms of television but they're seen as trusted um and that uh you know that again is part of i think being a small country an island the the uh, the social cohesion very much so. And of course, the other person who's really come to the fore at the moment is Tony Holohan, somebody who I, I sort of know on the periphery, to, I'm saying now in terms of his media profile, prior to this, you know, he popped up here and there about various things. But he is somebody, I think, that has come across as a public servant whom you'd place the highest trust in and, and the whole way he's gone about the thing. We don't do an honours list, but obviously if we did, that man would be top of it. And I... I, it's his patience, actually. I mean, he's obviously bright and knows his stuff, but I just find that he is remarkably patient. You can hear him being asked the same question over and over. He will, he realizes that sometimes people he need to hear things, I think, a number of times. So he will answer it very patiently and calmly. Um, and I, also, I think it's the idea that they have a very good team and this, the NFET, as they're called, this committee that um, you know that 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 was set up um, or that deals with the the wider questions and the, and the wider issues, um, you know, you're left with a sense that all of the expertise and even Philip Nolan from Manute, who was on Monday night, the idea that all these academics are working on uh, on you know trying to model where where things are are going to be. That it's a it's an effort involving everyone, and that the best brains in the in the country are there. Um, you know, I mean, I feel I feel Mick as I'm talking. You know that it's all you know motherhood and apple pie, but it is in a really poisonous, dangerous situation that we're tra- that we're trying to combat, and I think it absolutely shows us us at our at our best. And at the end of it all, I mean, it goes back to that that wonderful interview that Mike Ryan, I have to say Mike Ryan is my COVID crush. Um, <laughs> Ligo and yeah. And they, actually somebody messaged me and told me, I'd said something about him on Twitter and said they know him and that he's actually, he's great crack as well. Right. So I, that just added to the whole enigma for me when he said, you know, don't, don't leave anything behind. Don't wonder about anything. Make the decisions. You know, I feel we're, we're doing that that we will look back on it. Yes, I know there's questions now and they need to be addressed about do we leave the airport open even in relation to the border with the north and all of that. Um, But I think in the round, so far certainly, we haven't left anything behind. No, and I'm I'm, I'm sure there have been mistakes. Mistakes are absolutely inevitable from the point of view that nothing like this has ever been experienced before. I would guess 
that in the aftermath there will be questions asked about the approach to testing but as I say you know there are going to be mistakes and, and that's inevitable one final thing Alison that strikes me um, the future I, I heard Colm Tobin the writer on there at the weekend someone I'd always find worth listening to I think he was on Miriam O'Callaghan's programme on Sunday and he was asked about he's actually he's self-isolating himself now he's over in Los Angeles he's stuck there which sounds great, but I mean, when you're stuck inside, I knows how great it is to be anywhere. But the point he made, he, he was asked, will we come out of it different? And he said he, he'd been through a serious illness himself and he didn't feel he, he's very different today. And it makes you wonder, do you think there'll be societal changes? Will there be changes in our political culture, anything like that as a result of this experience? Well, in some ways, I hope so. Uh, and yet in other ways, then I look at my children and I worry and I think, you know, you're out for a walk and you're you're allotted exercise and you're telling them to keep in or to keep away from people, you know, and then oh, but yet also you're stressing that we're all the reason we're staying in is to try and keep everybody safe, the older members of the family and that. You know, I'm sure there are all sorts of people who have maybe a two hour commute, um, you know, four hour journey time each day who are working from home now who may, you know, um, start thinking, God, you know, actually, I may be stuck at home, but it's much better than being in the car for that that length of time. Um, I really I think that uh, I think there are there will have to be a lot of relationships that will come out of it, yes, strengthened. I mean, marriages and other relationships, but a lot of them, I'd say, will will people will realise, no, this is definitely, this is definitely not for me. Um, and people will be, during this time, when you're stuck inside, you'll be absolutely reassessing. Now, the, the talks that are going on at the moment, the government and all of that, I mean, that's a whole other podcast, Mick. Um, yeah. But I would really like to think that when it comes to things like the health service, or even with that the price of land and that is bound to suffer now and come down, that we'd be able to take advantage of that in terms of building more houses. Um, but ultimately, I suppose, it goes back to what we were discussing there earlier. We are a generation, and I think particularly maybe, uh, I don't think there's that much of an age difference between us, despite what you generously said earlier. First of all, we had we had the economic crash and I don't think we had gotten over the um, the 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 psychological um, trauma that was involved in that. And now we have this. And I think that those are two, um, you know, it's enough for one life to have had one of those, let alone to have two. And we still don't know how long this is going to go on for. So I think we will certainly there will there will be scarring from that. I think that will that will always stay with us in some form or other. I think you're right and I think the only thing about it is it's going to be the thing for the whole world so it'll be very interesting to see how we all manage to get past that. Alison, Alison O'Connor, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Stay safe and uh, stay sane with all the family at home no more than all the rest of us. Thanks again, Alison. Thank you. Take care, Mick. Thank you. That's it for today, folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our engineer, JJ Vernon. And thank you. You can subscribe to the podcast at any of the usual platforms, iTunes, Spotify, and all the others. You can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you soon.
On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.